This podcast is provided for educational purposes and is not intended to replace discussions with your healthcare provider. All decisions regarding your care must be made with a healthcare professional, considering the unique characteristics of your personal situation. The opinions expressed are the opinions of the individuals recorded and not the opinions of Beatrice. Individuals featured in this podcast may have participated in the past or may be current members of an advisory group for Beatrice. Today on Listen Well, we'll be exploring the science of stress, inflammation, and its impact on the body, literally from head to toe. I'll be asking Dr. Roger McIntyre, mood disorders expert and professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto, about the negative and positive role stress plays in our lives. I'll also tap into the insightful mind of Teresa Nguyen, Chief Program Officer at the Patient Association Mental Health America, who will share her personal story and professional experiences with us. By the end of this podcast, it's my hope that you gain a deeper understanding of how stress impacts our bodies and our minds, and that you'll be inspired by the science and personal stories to achieve a healthier equilibrium. Remember, don't let the pressure make you tune out. It's time to listen well. So you've worked in the area of stress as part of your work for a long time, but there's an essential question. What is stress? You know, it really is the essential question. And I think that uh, for me, the way I approach stress is that um, stress is neither a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, stress is really, in fact, a scenario that we all face with. Uh, we have stresses in our day to complete our education. We have stresses with respect to managing our lives. And that's a good thing. That's how we grow. That's how we adapt. Um, and so stress is a is a scenario where a person is faced with a um, call to action of sorts. And that call to action requires that person to adapt. And that's how we move forward in our lives. And that's very healthy. Uh, stress can be, in fact, very unhealthy um, if a couple of uh, aspects of stress present. First, if stress is just unending, it just keeps going on and on and on. And second, if we have really very little control over that stress. Um, in other words, it's coming or we perceive that it's coming from some of the source. And so, for example, uh, people who have, um, say, difficulties paying their bills, they have economic stress, and often they feel they're not in control of that. And that goes on for a long, long time. In those situations, rather than adapting to the situation, it ends up, in fact, becoming what we call maladaptive. In other words, what happens is, is it ends up actually interfering with our well-being, our quality of life, our day-to-day function. And the longer it goes on, it increases the chances that we begin to have what we call stress-related problems. Um, we start putting on weight. We start having problems sleeping. And we start having heart disease and diabetes and get depression. And the list keeps going. So stress is a scenario where we as organisms, and we are organisms, interact with our environment, and it's a call to action. And when it is in our control, and when it's in fact moderate in its dose, it's a good thing. But if it's too much, it's uncontrollable, it's a bad thing. Okay, just to clarify here, our takeaway is that stress is both a good and bad thing in our lives. We all react differently to stress. Our personal characteristics may amplify or minimize our reaction to external stressors. If your instinct is to keep it coming in manageable doses, Dr. McIntyre is saying you've got the right idea. If not, there are things you can do. For example, we now know that if you're exposed to stress, 
that's maladaptive, it can activate your immune system, your inflammatory system. And your inflammatory system is developed to help you. It's there to develop, fight bad guys like bad pathogens, bacteria, viruses, and so on. It's also there to help your wounds if you had a in wound of sorts. But like many things in life, if in fact there's too much of it, it may not be a good thing. And what happens is, is when the immune system becomes activated, because the immune system doesn't discriminate. It, it, in fact, the body's under stress. It doesn't know if it's under stress because you can't pay your bills or you're living in a high crime neighborhood or you've been exposed to trauma or if it's because you had an infection. It just, just turns itself on. But if there's no infection to fight, it starts fighting you. And you start seeing a wear and tear effect on your body. You start seeing, in fact, a real wear and tear. And uh, over time, this results in both medical and mental illness. Okay, buckle up here. We've defined stress and its potential impact. Now, Dr. McIntyre is adding in a complex concept called inflammation. So I asked him if he could help us by exploring its link to stress. What's so interesting about inflammation well, it's got kind of a very interesting evolutionary perspective. So we as humans um, survived um, because of our ability to adapt to stress. And frankly, our job description, in fact, some may still say it still is, but our job description from an evolutionary perspective was to pass our genes on to the next generation. And what assured that was uh, proximity to food and secondly, proximity to the ability to mate. And if, in fact, you had an infection or a wound or the sorts, um, it made good evolutionary sense for you to fight your infection, and it made good evolutionary sense for you to stay put, that is, reduce your overall activity so you could fight your infection and not be subjected to a predator attacking you like a big, gigantic mountain lion. So what ended up happening is survival or fitness was given to people with robust immune systems. And the more robust your immune system was, the more likely you could fight infection, heal your wound, and adapt and have your DNA move on to the next generation. Mm-hmm. Well, nowadays, most of us are not being chased around by mountain lions and tigers. Uh, most of us are subjected to social determinants of health, like mm-hmm. poverty, food deserts, racism, high crime neighborhoods. Inflammation has always been like a fire. The body is inflamed. The brain's inflamed, the body's inflamed, and like many fires, it can really be an out-of-control wildfire. And it's, it's you know, when we go camping, we have a campfire that's controlled, we enjoy time with the family, etc. That's a very different fire than an out-of-control wildfire. And mm-hmm. out-of-control wildfire does damage. So we want some inflammation. Inflammation is good. It's what actually helps us heal our wounds is what helps us fight foreign invaders but when that becomes out of control we've got a wildfire going on and it spreads and it spreads all over the body creating all kinds of collateral damage and just like a wildfire it is indiscriminate it takes out everything in its path so i like the concept of a fire that becomes a wildfire and there you have it inflammation and our reaction to stress are traits that come from our ancestors traits that helped them, and now us, to survive. Today, we understand that inflammation is like a fire, and stress like the spark. The fire can spread wildly across different systems in our bodies. The best we can do is try to subdue the spark to control the flame. I'd like to now introduce you to someone who actively struggles with stress daily, in both her professional and personal life. 
Meet Teresa. Yeah, stress is such a sucky thing. <laughs> I think most people, you know, when you're early on in your process, you don't really have a grasp of the way that stress subtly just can screw so many things up. Um, because you're worried about the thing that's stressful itself, right? You're worried about the relationship that you have that's exploding, or you worry about the depression or the anxiety getting overwhelming. And what you don't realize is the way that it's a, it's a cycle. And when you're stressed, it, it makes everything just so much harder. Um, and, and biologically, I, we know that, um, like even as a consumer or a clinician, like, you know, that you know, in your like logical mind, the way that's supposed to work. But when you're caught up in the process, you, you, I don't think that we're, it's easy to separate stress from the challenges that you're experiencing. And that's why it's really hard unless you're really good at practicing things like mindfulness and presence and calmness. Like those are all the things that we know are so good or exercise. And it just, um, but it's the hardest thing to do when you're in the chaos, right? I think so many people relate to that right now because everything feels so chaotic. And you're like, my mind is not focused on trying to get better right now. My mind is focused on trying to fix what I'm dealing with. I'm trying to fix the fight in the house. I'm trying to fix that we can't get food or have access to housing or whatever really difficult, stressful things that people really experience. Now that we've laid the groundwork on stress and inflammation, let's look at the links with health in general. Have you ever heard the saying, stress kills? It sounds like an exaggeration, but learning how stress, inflammation, obesity, and mental health are related may make you think twice. Obesity is a stressor to the human body, and it's associated with inflammation. It itself is an endocrine gland, which means it's a hormone gland producing hormones. And what we've learned is, is that if you've been obese for five years, that's a lot worse than being obese for two years. If you've been obese for longer, it's worse than shorter. The cells of the body, when they're exposed to inflammation, increase the risk for cancer formation, and that's been associated with obesity, and heart disease, etc. What I think is especially interesting is that inflammation also metastasizes to the brain from obesity. And that causes a decrease in someone's ability to focus and concentrate, which we call cognition. They're prone to depression, bipolar illness, probably even schizophrenia and other mm. disease states. Not only do we see these studies keep appearing in our literature, everyone knows obesity is linked to heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, etc. But this link to brain health has been one of the most interesting and concerning revelations not just linked to uh, dementia, but in younger people linked to mood disorders like major depression, bipolar disorder, and probably even linked to ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Roger is getting right to the point here. Basically, he's saying that every system in our body seems to be connected. He's also being very clear that obesity is a kind of stressor that leads to inflammation in our body, something we don't want getting out of control at any time. So let's take a journey through the body. Let's start with the brain, since you mentioned it. You said obesity metastasizes to the brain and the, all the links to stress. What's actually happening in the brain with stress and inflammation? 
The brain cells can be broken into two broad categories, the gray matter and the white matter. And for the longest time, we thought the white matter was just like, it's just there for scaffolding support, just like these two by four pieces of wood that keep the brain together. And that probably was a derivation of Vercal. You know, Vercal was the one who named the, the white matter glia, the glue. And people thought it was just the glue keeping the neurons together. Well, we've learned that that's not entirely true. The white matter plays a critical role in inflammation. And inflammation is required in the brain because it remodels the brain. It prunes the brain, just like pruning your, head, you know, your plants around your house. It's responsible for taking away neuronal debris through the neuroplasticity process. This is all good. Jargon alert here. What we mean by neuroplasticity is the ability of your brain to change throughout your life, to adapt to different situations, including cleaning up different types of neural debris. Inflammatory cells in our brain are the white matter, the microglia, Mm -hmm. and they help prune and keep the, the brain clean, keep it free of debris. Uh, it really allowed the brain to function on full cylinders. But when those act- cells remain activated for too long, just like we talked about, you get collateral damage. And what happens is, is that brain cells, both the white matter and the gray matter, when they're exposed for a long period of time to inflammatory molecules, they begin to die. They die a lot earlier. So you're almost describing a system-level breakdown in the brain. It's a great way of putting it. I love that moniker. It truly is a, a quintessential systems breakdown. In other words, what you have is you have from the ground up, so to speak, inflammation is all out attacking different parts of the brain, uh, right from the DNA, but all the way up through the proteins, the cells, and the circuits. This is why we really, really think that with respect to people who have obesity or who are subject to this unremitting, uncontrollable stress, why they're so susceptible to an assortment of mental disorders. Patients will come into our clinic and say, oh, my brain's on fire. They come in and they say, you know, life doesn't feel as interesting anymore to me. I lack motivation. Food and friends is not as enjoyable. I become withdrawn. I'm tired. I lack motivation. What they're saying is, is that parts of my brain are on fire. What that means in sort of more scientific speak is that parts of their brain have been adversely affected by inflammation, decreasing its function and manifesting as these features. You know, what strikes me about the way you describe it, Roger, is that inflammation, it's like this higher order thing happening in the brain that can explain so many different mental illness. It it really does. And and I think that, you know, the thing that's so intriguing about inflammation is not just the evolutionary sort of context of it, but the fact that it is really a system that is really so influenced by the individual in interaction with their environment. Before you run into the shower to put your burning brain out and avoid a full systems breakdown, let's just remember this is an analogy. Yes, there is a real link between mental disorders and stress and inflammation. The good news is that there are practical things we can do to help prevent and reduce this situation. I always ask people, well, has anyone ever heard of the vaccination for depression? People go, vaccination for depression? What's that? I say it's exercise. There was a study out of mm-hmm. uh, uh, Scandinavia showing that just exercising on a regular basis reduces your risk of depression by 10 to 20%. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's get back to stress and its impacts on the body's systems. Another part about this, which is really kind of interesting, is that if you're under a lot of stress, 
Stress will begin to change the composition of your gut bacteria. We call that your enterotype, your, the type of bacteria in your bowel. And then that leaves the body more prone to inflammation, um, which is very interesting. And the mechanism is complex, but here's one part I find really interesting, Mo. There are some bacteria that are in your gut that would be abnormal to find in your blood. And I won't get into all the details of them, but there's a couple of them that are they're, they're good guys as long as they are in your bowel. They help you out in your bowel. They should not be in your blood. And interestingly, people who have depression have antibodies to some of these bacteria, which means that their blood was exposed to it. And this is what's called the leaky gut. So a lot of people think that what's happening in some cases is that people who have obesity or diabetes or depression end up having these conditions because Yes, they're under stress, and stress causes a leakiness in their gut, which causes an exposure of some of the bacteria in the gut to the blood, which then fires off the immune system, setting in motion what you and I talked about. So it really begs the question, can we treat the bacteria in the gut to help people with obesity, diabetes, or depression? People are looking at that. There's over 100 studies going on right now with fecal transplantation around the world trying to treat these conditions. You heard that right, by the way. Taking healthy poop from one person and putting it into another with the intent of changing the balance of the gut bacterial flora to help manage major medical conditions. It's a bit of a curveball, but I'm following. Let's get back to it. So when we have healthy bacteria in the gut, how do they talk to the brain? They do it through a variety of pathways. One of the pathways is what we call the the gut brain. In other words, well, we think of the brain as the central nervous system, but the bowel has its own brain. It's called the enteric nervous system. And the enteric nervous system, everyone knows what it is, because if you are under a lot of stress, you maybe have more bowel frequency, etc. that's your brain talking to your gut. And that's a, a nerve system called the vagus nerve. You know that old expression about listening to your gut? Who knew, but our brains were already doing it. A second way in which the gut communicates to the brain is through inflammation. We were talking about this whole leaky gut and perhaps stress causes leakiness in the gut, activates the immune system, that goes directly to the brain. And the third non-mutually exclusive pathway is neurochemical. For example, much of our brain chemistry, like serotonin, is produced in the gut. And there's many types of proteins that are in the gut that are also in the brain. You know, what strikes me about a lot of the things you've been talking about is stress is neither good or bad. It depends on the balance. That brain axis is the same way. Can you, can you talk about that, the, the sense of balance with all these physiological functions? Yeah, and this is such a good point, Mo, to come back to because I think that, you know, the bumper sticker says stress is bad. The bumper sticker shouldn't say that. Uh, the bumper sticker, which is, well, it's a pretty long bumper sticker, it would say <laughs> stress is bad if it's uncontrollable and chronic. But mm. stress is good if it's controllable in short. We need stress to grow. We need stress to adapt, to evolve. It's a good thing. But again, like most things in life, I guess they call it the Goldilocks effect, too much or too little. It's not, you need the right temperature. And one part about this mode, which is really important, underscores resiliency. And so two people exposed to the same, in quotes, stressor, have a very different reaction to that stressor. We know, for example, in post-traumatic stress, men and women of uniform who are subject to combat, we're going to presume that the stressor was the same. They'll see something horrific happen. Yet somebody goes on to have terrible PTSD, 
The other person, mm-hmm. in fact, goes back to their battalion. They go back home to the wherever they're from, and they get on with their lives. What's going on here? Yeah, how do we make sense of that? Yeah, this is whole this, this thing called resiliency. And quite frankly, we are really in our infancy of understanding resiliency. I guess you could kind of say that resiliency in kind of generic terms is, is the ability to really adapt. So if you're the type of person, let's say cognitively, let's say cognitively, you're a person who's fairly inflexible cognitively. You're a person who's got relatively few um, options in your drop-down menu as how you're going to respond to an event. You're probably more prone to a maladaptive response. If you're someone who, in fact, has incredible cognitive dexterity and flexibility, and you're exposed to a trauma or a stressor, where your drop-down menu could be a lot bigger, and we choose and select how we respond. Now, choose and select, I use that in quotation marks. It's not something you do sort of consciously. But you choose and select the way you, you adapt to circumstance. And people with greater cognitive dexterity may, in fact, have greater if you will, malleability or great ways to adapt to the event. And at the molecular level, what happens is they don't mount as high a stress response. Their palms are not as sweaty. They don't have as much gastrointestinal distress. They're not as inflamed. They kind of just roll with the punches more than someone who is more prone to having adverse consequences. Okay, so how much a person experiences stress also depends on how adaptable they are to different situations, which is why not everyone experiences the same stressor the same way. But it's hard to ignore the fundamental impact that stress can have on our bodies if we can't cope with the pressure. We now know that stress leads to inflammation, which can lead to obesity and mental health issues, not to mention gut problems, and then back to mental health again. Did we forget anything? Roger, we always hear these stories about relatively young businessman who suddenly has a heart attack, and and then people say, "Oh, he was so stressed." Is that something that really happens? That stress, mental stress, affects the heart? There was actually a bit of a misunderstanding to that. I think that the key thing is the degree to which there's harmony between the demands on the person and what the person, in fact, desires and what the person, in fact, enjoys. But if, in fact, you're being asked to do task A, B, C, D, all kinds of tasks that are not aligned with who you are as a person, that's where the problems arise. In other words, when the environment is not in sync with the organism, that leads to a discordance and that leads to stress and inflammation. But the reality is, is that, you know, a lot of people like to be in that environment. It's not stressful to them. So can stress have adverse effects on the heart? Absolutely. But I would also say it depends because a lot of people are under a lot of stress, but they thrive in it. If you were to take a sample of their blood and look at stress hormones, et cetera, they're not the least bit stressed because this is the environment they thrive in. But when there's a disconnect between what they really desire and what they're surrounded by, this is huge. And I think one of the great discordances we're seeing today is the desired versus reality around what people's social networks really are. And the paradox is in this hyper-connected world of social media, et cetera, people have probably never been so lonely. And we're yeah. seeing an uptick in heart disease in some parts of the United States in the last uh, decade. And we're seeing upticks in obesity, upticks in depression. And there's, a, I think, a valid hypothesis that this is stress linked to loneliness, which, again, is affecting some of the systems we talked about, like inflammation, et cetera. 
This is a good moment to bring up the current environment in which we're in with the COVID-19 epidemic and loneliness. The COVID-19 situation is something humanity has never seen. And this COVID-19 situation has multiple stressors going on. Not only is it a, a very serious infection, there's also a, a world of information being communicated that often contains misinformation, which is only added to stress. And also on top of that, we have seen a shutting down of national borders and regional borders around the world we've never seen before. And this is resulting in incredible isolation. So I think, in fact, we're not just looking at an infectious issue going on with COVID. We're not just looking at a financial issue with COVID, but we're looking at one of the great psychosocial stressors to people vis-a-vis this external stressor, as well as the isolation, as you said, in this world of loneliness. This is a very complex set of conspirators that are not good for human health. Right. Heart health and pandemics. We've really piled on the stress in this show. But like I was mentioning earlier, there are things we can do to help ourselves. Seriously. I think where one recognizes that there's stress is really from the point of view of just day-to-day quality of your life and function. In other words, stress is a good thing. Stress is a bad thing. Again, we want to come back to the basic definition. If it's something you can control in its short term, that's probably not a bad thing. Conversely, if it's long-term, you can't control it, mm, that's concerning. And I think that people subjectively begin to feel a sense of helplessness. They feel a sense of uh, hopelessness. They feel overwhelmed. Their quality of life decreases. Their vitality begins to decrease. For our French listeners, their joie de vivre begins to decrease. And they become, in fact, less inclined to want to participate in activities. They may not have a, a floor of mental illness, but they're withdrawing. They're withdrawing. Just like an animal, when under a lot of stress, we withdraw. And that's concerning. And um, it often manifests behaviorally. Can't sleep or involved in other activities. And I think, in fact, there's a lot of very basic things people can do to manage stress mode. And that is, of course, being aware of it. It seems like it's 101. It's a very basic, kind of almost preachy statement. But Good sleep hygiene and sleep behavior is the great resiliency, the great anti-stress intervention. Good food, where you can afford it, where it's available. I know there's lots of food deserts and food swamps out there, but where you can afford it, where it's available. And one that's very tricky is economics and try to benefit yourself there. Have a healthy diet. A balanced diet, reducing the sugars, I think is a, a good place to start. So it's as much about the kitchen as it is about the gym. Absolutely. Absolutely it is. And I think also, to the extent you can, being connected to your community, to friends and families, these things are within our reach. Sleeping better, eating well, two great ways to reduce stress and inflammation. But what about exercise? Are there specific exercises to help get the best effects? You know, this area's had much more rigorous research in the last five to seven years. The short answer is both resistance, that is lifting weights uh, and aerobic, that is going for a run or walking, skating, biking, this type of thing. Both are highly beneficial. You know, Mo, in neuroscience, we have an interesting math. One plus one tends to equal 10. And Mm -hmm. aerobic exercise plus the resistance, you know, this is the push-ups, the sit-ups, the pull-ups, the lifting weights, that seems to have a synergistic effect when those are brought, the aerobic and the resistance together. 
whether we're looking at measures of brain health, measures of well-being, quality of life, functioning, vitality, and just the benefits also on physical health. Our listeners will be wondering, well, you know, I'm, a, I'm not an Olympic athlete. I don't want to go running and sweating it up, you know, two hours a day and becoming buff in the gym and all this kind of stuff. Well, it, you know, I think that well, there's two messages. First is you don't need to be an Olympic athlete to benefit from exercise or, uh, you know, be exercising at the Olympic level. Here's what I'll tell people. If, in fact, you are exercising either resistance, aerobic, or both, and you can still maintain a conversation with someone, you're probably not exercising hard enough. Just that level where you got to say to your friend, you know, I can't keep this conversation. I'll talk to you later. That's exactly the heart rate you should be at. Of course, pushing yourself physically is great, but it can also be a mental stretch in some situations to even get up, much less get going. Listen to what Teresa had to say about exercise and mental health. Yeah, I mean, everyone knows that exercise helps. <laughs> but everyone also loves, I personally also love my Cheetos. So <laughs> it's the constant battle, right? Like, I know what's good for me. And I know that exercise is so good. You can literally feel it in your head and your body after I get out. But with depression, it, especially depression, ugh, freaking depression, it's so hard to get motivated to move your body because your body is glued to your bed. So, I mean, what is there to say? It's like, yeah, you, we know what works and we know it's good for us. I do tell people like, I know what my body can do, but I have to have compassion for what it can do in this moment. So if I'm having a depressed episode, maybe all I can do today is get out for a five minute walk to start. But I know that if I just set that small goal and accomplish a small goal, it will build to a larger goal and eventually get there. And the other thing too is just to have a friend who has similar goals. Maybe it's not because of depression. It's just to get out of the house or it's to exercise. We all want to figure out how to lose weight and be healthy. And it's the collective <laughs> struggle it, you know, in America, it feels like. So finding a friend has helped me a ton just to say, I'm going to be your accountability buddy. And like, we're going to, we're going to commit to each other for two days out of the week where I'm, I can't get up out of my bed for myself, but I can get up out of my bed for my friend and be like, okay. And plus I know she's going to come and say, why are you in bed? Come on. We said we were going to do this. And the shame of that, the shame of leaving a person behind that will compel me to go exercise. And then when I'm done, I feel so good. Right. And that's what you have to focus on too. It's like, oh, I have to remember how good it felt to take care of myself and to, to do the right thing and to exercise because whatever it is, it's clearly helping. And what are your thoughts on meditation or other methods to calm the mind? One thing you can do to control your experience is to take deep breaths and practice grounding to bring yourself back to that space where you know you can do at least that and it, and it can help you. Grounding is just an exercise that you can do when your mind is going 100 miles an hour and it takes you from that space that you, your brain wants to go and it brings it to the present moment. So if you can stop thinking about those things that make you anxious and you just focus on your five senses, you focus on what is right here in the present moment, um, that's what grounding is. And it's called grounding because it's trying to bring you from 
out in space to the ground, right? And so people talk about one grounding technique is to use your five senses, your sight, your touch, your sense of smell, and just say, this is what I hear. This is what I smell. This is what I see. This is what I feel. And just put something else in your brain that is benign, just so you can remind yourself that you are here on earth and not where your brain wants to go. People find that they have affinity for different senses, right? Some of us are big hearers. Some of us are big touchers. And so if you find your thing that you really like, you also learn about yourself and like what really works. And at least for me, touch is the only thing. It's like, I have to touch my chair and I have to say, I can feel this chair right now. You know, it's cold in my hand. I'm just right here. And then I incorporate in it like statements that I personally need to hear to talk myself down. Like, Teresa, you need to calm down, take a deep breath, walk away. This is not helping right now. And just be like, I feel this chair. <laughs> I'm not going to deal with this right now, you know, and, and that's what you do. Like you just, you have to go from where your mind wants you to go in that anxiety shame spiral and and you have to try and practice presentness and grounding is a tool to practice that present focusness <laughs> so to sum it all up if you're feeling the pressure do what you can to relieve it exercise if you're not already and make time for it walking outside is one of the best and easiest ways to get moving focus on healthy eating when you can get a good night's sleep try a mindfulness exercise like journaling or something as simple as taking a walk in nature, because your health may actually depend on it. Teresa also has some great tools from Mental Health America that can help. In 2014, we started mhascreening.org, and it's just anonymous mental health screens. And it's really cool because I know when I go to talk to my doctor in person, I am not honest. Even me, I'm not honest about my mental health screens. <laughs> and I have, and I realize that I'm, it's just a different experience than when I'm online and I go and I take like a depression screen just to see how bad I am. And I play with it because I want to see if I'm really that bad right now, but they're free. There's a depression screen, anxiety, psychosis, bipolar, addiction screen. And then when you take a screen, you, actually the results pop up and then you can access a bunch of tools and resources and particularly articles that are written based off of comments that we get from screeners. So a lot of the the topics are things that you might not see in a traditional um, education website. MHA as a whole, as an entity, is also always putting out content. If you're an advocate or an educator a lot of clinicians go to our site and download our Mental Health Month Toolkit. This year's toolkit is called Tools to Thrive. And so we do see a lot of clinicians take that and download them because they have worksheets, which I think are good if you're leading a group or it's good if you're just looking for a self-help tool and you're like, I want to learn breathing or I want to understand how to reduce my stress and practice grounding. You know, you can download a worksheet and just like paste that up on your wall just as the reminder about what you're supposed to do when you're otherwise going to freak out. <laughs> MHA has a podcast called In the Open. I host it with America and it's a lot of just similar to what I just described, you know, us talking personally about things that the topics that we see on screening and having an honest dialogue about symptoms and experiences. So if people are interested in that kind of approach, you can check it out at In the Open from MHA. Thanks so much for that, Teresa, and for all your honest insights and helpful information. Thanks, Roger, for joining us. 
Really appreciated it. Stress is becoming a major contributor to poor health, and most of us don't realize what stress is doing to our bodies, our mental health, and our personal lives. Make a pledge to yourself to listen to your body and work towards making the changes you need to relieve unnecessary stress in your life. I'm Dr. Mo Aswedan. Thanks for listening. Brought to you by Beatrice, empowering people worldwide to live healthier at every stage of life. Powered by Beatrice.